Well, wh- why are you looking? Why are you looking at me like that? We're not going to ask any questions about kebab. No, I think we, we're, we're all we're kebabbed just, out. We're, we're not going to ask that. Did you I see Prefrand de Beirut bought the place across yeah. the street? They're expanding. Eventually, all of Geneva will just be Prefrand de Beirut. Like the hipsters would be like, I like Prefrand de Beirut before it became a franchise. <laughs> but it's also when we need accompanying policies like competition policy. Exactly. Why is Alamir not expanding? It's bad for the consumer. That's no, because they're focused on their craft, which is equally terrible kebabs. Both great at 2 a.m. God. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. In episode 60, we'll talk about the forces facing global policymakers as they meet this week in Abu Dhabi, including climate, inflation, fragmentation. There's a whole bouquet of them. And we'll also touch about how many Viagra you can come into Geneva with. And spoiler alert, it's not 1,200. It's a decent amount of personal use. And later we'll be joined by Edu Manik of the Council on Foreign Relations and Dmitry Gazubinsky of the Geneva Trade Platform who will give us a decidedly trade is actually half full version of what to look for inside and outside of the upcoming WTO ministerial MC13. It's what's on the inside that counts. That's exactly right. We'll get to that. And we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. So let's get into it because this episode needs to go out to coincide with MC13. Otherwise, we're doing it for no reason. Well, everybody, welcome to episode 60. 60 is a big number in many people's lives, not Rob's. Not yet. But not yet, exactly. What it is, is actually the atomic number of neodymium. Neodymium, not from the Matrix trilogy, is classified as a lanthanide, which listeners will be familiar with by now. Uh, it's a key component in powerful magnets, also found in headphones, microphones, and loudspeakers. All things that we use to record this podcast and bring it to you, our dear listener. Thank you, Neodymium. You're welcome. I mean, I'm speaking for it. <laughs> the number 60 is also the base of the sexagesimal numerical system, which was used by the ancient Sumerians around 2000 BC and later adopted by the Babylonians. System is still in use today, as you'll know, because 60 seconds are in a minute, 60 minutes are in an hour, and angles as well. There's 360 degrees in a circle, for those of you who didn't know. 60%, funnily enough, humans typically have that same percentage number of their DNA in common with bananas. And uh, if you're wondering... <laughs> If that's true or not, source, trust me, bro. I should mention also, most importantly, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our future episodes coming out very soon. If you don't, I will find you, like Liam Neeson, named after my son. And better yet, you can also find us, share it with a friend or a stranger. I will find you if you don't. And where you can find us is anywhere you get your podcast. So subscribe to all of them and do leave a review. Moving on to feedback, since this is the hate mail segment, uh, a Swiss banker wrote, who shall be unnamed at this point, he, he chooses to, to be unnamed, has asked us to make more episodes, which is good. He's been catching up since the holiday break way back in December, quote unquote, but I'm running out of TS episodes to listen to on my daily bike rides. So we'll duly oblige, especially now that Michelle, Angela, and Armina are on board. And also a longtime listener in Abidjan, just wanted to tell us that she loves the podcast and is still listening to every episode. She apparently loves the uh, the dad jokes, and we love her the more for it. She gets us. 
I also need to mention that if you're wondering why it sounds a bit weird, it's because Rob and I are not together for this episode. Forces beyond our control have brought us apart, the main one being MC13, which Rob will be traveling to. But fear not, because of audiovisual technology, we are recording this remotely and we're still bringing TS episodes to you. Finally, Michelle is still making fun of me because I use wallets. It's apparently a thing that Gen Z is doing to millennials because we still think that wallets are useful. I would just add that I don't carry any cash apart from the odd $10 bill or 10 franc bill, excuse me. But what would I do with all my cards if I didn't have a wallet, like my ID card? What do you, I, I don't know, it's a question for Michelle. She's not here, she's traveling at the moment. She's flying to some exotic place. I definitely am a wallet user, but also cash. There's a cafe in the village where we have a house. It's 140 a coffee, and they do not take cards. So you've got to have just a little bit of silver in the pockets. Old school. Yeah, I guess it's it's quaint to do that as well, um, if you're into that thing. It's also compared to like six francs in Geneva. So it's <laughs> quaint and inexpensive. Oh, okay, that's good to know. What have you been hearing, Rob? <laughs> so uh, on my side, you remember quiet quitting, then there was maybe less of that. Now there's something called quiet hiring, this is where people, rather than recruiting from the outside, they train people up to take on different roles. And that's, what do we call that? Manage, you, middle management. Doing what you were doing before, <laughs> calling it something different. Well, I, I got that wrong. Wow. How did I mess oh, that up? We're going to hire people from inside. Why do we need a term for this? Because you got to publish a newspaper every day. Yeah, so, so this is not called quiet hiring. So get out there, folks. If you maybe are hearing whispers in the hallway, could be you're just about to be quietly hired, especially with low unemployment out there. Low employment. <laughs> Middle employment. I don't know. New term being coined as we speak. So then let's jump right into this episode's important news stories, because we know you're all wondering what we're going to be talking about. First one up, we'll just touch on it briefly, and that is MC13, which as of this episode going live, starts now. MC13, for those who don't know, is the top decision-making body of the World Trade Organization, and it deals with global rules of trade between nations. Uh, it's held at least once every two years normally, and is attended by trade ministers and other senior officials from organizations from across the 164 member countries. At these conferences, members also discuss a wide range of issues related to multilateral trading system, obviously, and these include things like trade liberalization, rules, disciplines. And these can really vary depending on the thing that people are talking about most, what's the most pressing for countries, et cetera, et cetera. Rob, you'll be attending MC13. I didn't get an invite this year, but tell me, what are you looking out for very quickly? Sure. I mean, I, you'll hear more from Inu and Dimitri, and I'm not a negotiator, so I, I'm not the main event at all. The things that folks like me go to do is there's so many people who are really important in, in trade that we can talk about very cool, deep issues on the margins of MC13. So we'll leave the discussion of negotiations, people like Eno and Dimitri. For me, it's to talk about, for instance, there's going to be some great discussions on trade tech, some great discussions on trade and gender. I'll be in a discussion on trade, tech, and food security. So it becomes a very rich environment, even if the negotiations themselves don't always knock it out of the park. And, and we'll hear a little bit in, in a little bit why that is and why maybe it shouldn't even be on the margins. There's lots of interesting technical and strategic discussions for those of us in the business. So stay tuned for that discussion. 
The next thing we want to talk about, there are a couple of articles recently that piqued our, our interest and I guess collectively they highlight the different challenges and or global challenges and trends that are being influenced by climate change, inflation, and obviously trade being among them. So from things like El Nino, which has been playing a, a, a big role or playing the villain, you can say in, in West Africa, drying out cocoa crops, raising the prices for things like Hershey bars, which me and Rob are big fans of, even though I'm a Nestle guy now that I'm in Switzerland. You've also got reports about land loss for agriculture, which obviously is going to be a really important thing if we want to grow things more locally. And diminishing arable land is a big problem in that sense, and it could impact food security and trade imbalances for certain countries or, or large swaths of the globe. And it might hint at a future where we need to fight over the last lettuce leaf, which is something I didn't think <laughs> I would, I would ever it. report on. And this one I particularly like since I haven't done it in a couple of years, and that is that ski vacations in the Alps are becoming elitist. Who knew? This is from Le Mans. Um, so it was <laughs> a surprise. It was a shocker. <laughs> and it talks about how climate change alongside inflation, among other things, is affecting tourism patterns, which, like it or not, it's about 16% of the global economy, and that is tourism. But it's not all bad. So Heineken, and Rob will particularly like this, Heineken has optimistically forecast that its growth is expected to increase despite the economic hangover of inflation. Wink, wink. And it shows that beer might just be recession-proof. So I guess together these really underscore yeah. the different sobering effects of all these things taken together. And it, most of them are negative. There are some positives, but it shows how there'll need to be some adaptation as sort of these things continue getting worse and worse, you could say. Yeah, or it, 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 as they keep evolving and changing. So we can say worse, but in any case, as we always say, trade continues, trade will adapt, trade will evolve, but we see already the effects. So maybe commodity prices are going to go up because of some of these things. As you said, cocoa prices going up. Historically, this has been a crop where folks couldn't make enough to live on the producers. Maybe that could change as a result of this. We see also this issue of, as you say, land loss. This is going to be affecting production levels globally. We know we've had some disruptions due to human activity like war and so on. But also these things will begin to show up in where the production happens and to what level. And again, it's going to affect trade. It's going to affect trade flows. It's going to affect prices. It's going to affect dynamics in terms of trade agreements. And we also see it, as you said, affecting some services areas. So that's the uh, the ski vacations in the Alps. It's been such an enormous industry. Remember, we talked a few years ago about how it's $30 billion, And that's slowly going away for the lower resorts. And they're going to have to go back to a time when, before tourism, when they were actually remote areas that didn't have a lot of economic opportunity, potentially. Right. But anyway, thanks, Beer. Thanks, Beer, for being there for us and, and for always growing. It's Heineken, but whatever, I'll, I'll make an exception in this case. Um, <laughs> the other thing we wanted to talk about is that despite the rosy outlook that Davos painted a few weeks back, we had Simon Evanen on to report back a little bit from there. Fragmentation apparently still seems to be a thing. At least that's what a few people are still reporting. This includes geopolitical fragmentation, whether that's in differences in antitrust approaches or shifts in trade and supply chains with big implications for countries like Germany. So NVIDIA is predicting a big surge in demand, and that shows in their recent stock surge. I think it's got a valuation of two or three trillion, which last time I checked is a lot. And this- Good buddy. <laughs> yeah. So there's this trend towards nationalizing AI infrastructure, of which NVIDIA is benefiting quite a bit. And it's driven by a desire to control and leverage data as this sort of, there's this geopolitical race towards, yeah, chips essentially. And this comes at the same time as China is apparently 
close to a breakthrough in their next generation chips, which is a bit of a surprise, at least for most U.S. politicians, because if you'll know, if you listen to this podcast, they were under a lot of restrictions for this particular sector since a few years now, with the hopes that they would not catch up. But in fact, the opposite has happened. So again, this is basically the Jeff Goldblum effect playing out. And I talked about this sort of global decoupling. So no need to go into too much detail there, but essentially it comes down to the U.S. is doing great. Europe is sort of middling along, not growing, but sort of being the antitrust enforcer. And China is facing lots of different challenges. Uh, and this also reflected in stock markets and things like that. This obviously has big implications for trade, but it's one of many different things going on all seemingly at the same time. I think the last bit, this is the most interesting for me. And Rob, you can jump in here when you like. Basically, Europe, we talked about how they're importing lots of solar energy in recent times. And it seems that there's a breakthrough in that respect. This, however, is leaving big countries like Germany, which traditionally the last 30 years or so has been an economic powerhouse, you can call it an industrial superpower, because I like big narrative ways to describe things. It's being left behind because it's a country that's known for its precision engineering and love for cars that go really fast on the Autobahn, but it's facing this existential crisis where it's got an older economic model, which is under strain as economies shift towards renewables and the tech of the future which just so happens that China, which is a geopolitical rival, is doing quite well. In. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot there, but these are the kinds of things that when policymakers come together, and this is members across these different camps that are developing, the WTO brings them together. They're facing all of these issues in, in the background, right? This is a context. So we have, of course, China and the U.S. will be there and others who are thinking about fragmentation, even as they're thinking about things like WT reform, even as they're thinking about things like fishery subsidies and so on, because WTO applies one rule to everybody and is a kind of anti-fragmentation. It's like the Lord of the Rings effect, one, exactly. one rule one to rule them all. The <laughs> and, and as Inu and Dimitri have told us, it's, um, that's one of the values is it's, it's kind of working. So there is kind of one set of rules, even if all these other things are happening at the margin. I think also we see the, the accompanying policies we've also talked about. Antitrust is one of them as a centrifugal force. It's pulling things apart. Different antitrust regulations, US, EU, and China are going to be pulling corporations in different directions. And again, the WTO wants there to be in a way more alignment between these things. And your point on Germany is really interesting one. So the Germans and the Europeans may be coming to negotiations with a different feeling, maybe not feeling like they're in a position of strength. And that's why they're starting all sorts of investigations about it's like a relationship. Uh, exports from China. Exactly. If you don't feel strong, you lash out. Exactly. <laughs> so, so we know that's a dynamic. And, and the last one in terms of importing solar panels and stuff, this is why trade exists, isn't it? And so if we want the green transition to happen, it's not going to be, we're all going to be autarkic, building our own social solar panels and nuclear plants. It's really interesting. We got this pull between, we got to go green and we don't necessarily want to import all of this stuff. These are really real issues that negotiators have in the back of their minds though, this week. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's a good segue to the last thing we want to talk about. And there are a couple of things we saw recently. There was a few articles and it was an article in the FT, another one. I can't remember where, which basically talked about how the one in the FT in particular talked about how they're, despite all this craziness going on in the world, that's wars, high interest rates, financial strife, real estate problems in, in China, which we've talked about quite a bit. So I'm talking my own book here. There's an opportunity for the US to 
show some leadership and fill that void amongst all these things going on. I definitely would say there's an opportunity there, how, whether it's feasible or not, considering the domestic issues, which we'll talk about probably a bit later, remains to be seen. It does, though, highlight that there's this balance, a tightrope to walk between domestic policies, international relations, and global uh, global trade leadership, if you can put it that way. It's true that the U.S. leadership is still really important. I think the article was really fascinating because what this is Al-Abadi of the FT is saying is general popularity of the U.S. Has, has eroded a lot since the Iraq war. So it's just been going steadily down internationally. But that hasn't stopped the U.S. from being a leader in some of the biggest trade trends since then. Although the U.S. pulled out of many of them. There was the TTIP, so the Transatlantic Investment Partnership. Then there's the TPP which was not initiated by the U.S., but the U.S. gave it legs at a certain point under the Obama administration. Again, the U.S. pulled out of it. But it's not to say that because we were unpopular, because the U.S. was unpopular, that it couldn't be a leader, that it couldn't get out front of things. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting point that folks are not as ideological in quotes anymore. They don't have to love you to follow you in key ways. And he points out, for instance, that the Indonesians Although the election has moved in a way that's not necessarily pro-U.S., they have been all in for the IPAF you just mentioned. So they've been all in for the U.S., the U.S. trade and investment and basically economic partnership approach in the Indo-Pacific region. So you can decouple whether folks like the U.S. or whether folks are ideologically on board with everything the U.S. does from whether the U.S. can provide leadership and trade. I agree with you. If there are outcomes this coming week or in the future, the U.S. is going to be in there somewhere. Yeah, I guess collectively, everything we talked about really highlights a world where there's a tight rope or this tight, delicate balance between maintaining national interests because of everything that's going on. You nat- you naturally get a bit more sensitive or you lash out, as you said, in a relationship. And having that on one hand with the necessity for global cooperation, uh, especially when you're talking about corporate power or talking about new economic realities in the case of Germany, we're living in interesting times with a lot going on. That sort of status quo, which was in place for what, maybe 30 years, has is, is obviously made way for something much more fluid, organic. Things are changing much quicker. And I had wrote down that there's a sort of economic tango, which has more steps than ever. And it involves US, China, and Europe, which are all going to their own beats. So they're all terrible dancers dancing to the same song. And it's creating a world which is less about hand-holding and more about, I'll call you, maybe, type of thing. So thanks, Gen Z. <laughs> that's great. So that's, it's a triple tango. Of disaster. Of like people with, with four left feet. Dmitry Gruzabinsky is a former Australian trade negotiator and current executive director of the Geneva Trade Platform. My old job. Quoted on trade policy issues in publications like the Financial Times, The Economist, and New York Times, Dmitry specializes in making complex debates accessible. Born in Ukraine, Dmitry grew up in Australia, where he obtained a Master's of Diplomacy in Trade from Monash University. He resides in Geneva, where he is tolerated by his partner. That's nice. Inu Vadak is a fellow for trade policy at the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR. At CFR, she researches and writes on policy issues relevant to U.S. trade policy. An expert in international political economy, Dr. Monak's research focuses on U.S. trade policy and the law and politics of the World Trade Organization. Her recent book, The Development Dimension, colon, Special and Differential Treatment in Trade, was co-authored with James Bacchus, the first chairman of the World Trade Organization's Abel at Bali.
So, Dimitri and Inu, thanks for joining us once again. Happy to have you guys on after it's been about a year or two since we've had you both on. What have you guys been up to for listeners who, who don't know, have been following? It's great to be back. It's been a, a busy year in trade, which means I've been very busy uh, working on a number of different things. Obviously, the rise of industrial policy, uh, looking at how to rethink the role of subsidies in trade and climate, and also trying to figure out what to do about trade going forward in terms of WTO reform, in terms of U.S. trade policy generally, where we're not negotiating many agreements, as you might have noticed. These are things that have occupied most of my time, and there's, they're going to keep on coming. God, that, that sounds so substantive. We've been trying our best to keep busy as well at the Geneva Trade Platform. Probably the thing I, I'm proudest about is about as far from the gritty edge of fixing industrial subsidies as it gets. We finally launched our two-year project, the Trade Law Casebook, which a brand new trade law textbook for free for students all over the world. And we're, we've been really gratified by how much people have found that useful and how many students ha have engaged with it. We're really excited. It's always really gratifying to get messages from places like Papua New Guinea where they say, listen, hey, this is the first time I can in good conscience assign a, a trade law textbook to my students without worrying about how they're going to be able to put food on the table for the three months after they buy it. So we're tremendously excited about uh, being able to launch that. Excellent. So let's just jump right into it. So MC13 is happening. Actually, first, I should start by asking you, what is your favorite fish and, and why? Well, sardines. And it's because it's the greatest WTO case, which is EC sardines. I'm a TVT nerd. So of course, I have lots of sardine memorabilia, including hairpins, which I wear when I lecture about TVT and the pins. I have a school of fish actually that I often wear as well for those presentations. So yeah. Team sardine and Dimitri, don't say tuna. I've got to say, I was going to say tuna <laughs> just because in the dolphin tuna case, you've I don't know anything about it, or I didn't, so I just assumed it was a case between dolphins and tuna where the membership had to pick a side, and I feel like the underdogs there have to be the tuna because dolphins are inherently more popular, even though tunas are formidable as a fish. And, and so I strategically root for the underdog, the delicious but underdog. <laughs> Flipper had charisma, but he didn't taste so good, at least from what I've heard. Anyway, sorry. So apart from that segue, which is definitely not needed, what does the future direction of trade policy look like now that MC13 is coming up? Is there anything that, yeah, that you're looking at, that you're expecting? Is there anything that you think we'll be taking away from? Is there hope, essentially? Oh, Inu was saying before we started that she thinks they're going to solve climate change and US-China. So I'd like to hear more about that. About climate change and US-China stuff? Oh, exciting. Just your conviction that they're going to solve it all <laughs> in two weeks. Let me step back and say I think that the ministerial conferences at the WTO have taken on a bit of an outsized importance. It's a bit odd because we don't really have high expectations for other meetings of this level for different organizations. In fact, most major meetings don't produce much, but somehow we've become used to the WTO ministerial achieving something. So there's a really high expectations that we have to get something the ministers meet. Is this a significant meeting? Maybe in the big landscape of what's going on in trade, not really much of what happens day to day. There are lots of other agreements that regulate trade in the world, other important bilaterals and smaller plurilateral agreements uh, that have actually created rules and spaces or the WTO hasn't. Uh, so I think that the WTO is one part 
of a bigger picture of what's going on. And though we may not get massive, big, exciting outcomes from this ministerial, we might get something and that should be good enough. Can I maybe continue that theme or or nuance it a little bit? The reason I think ministerial conferences have taken on an outsized importance is that if you think of the World Trade Organization, you have a system of treaties in the system that works most of the time fairly unnoticed. Most trade takes place within the WTO rules. We spend a lot of time talking about what's on the sort of outlying edges. So things that do get controversial, steel, solar panels, those kind of things. But most trade happens on WTO system. The system keeps going. The ministerial conferences are the places where we can amend or change those rules. And the reason it only really ever happens there is that inevitably any change to the rules requires someone to take on board political pain. It requires an expenditure of political capital. And that historically has required creating an artificial inflection point where there's there's going to be a date where we're all going to get together and it is going to be embarrassing if we do nothing. Your public will ask why you flew all the way to Nairobi, to Buenos Aires, um, to Abu Dhabi, and came back completely empty-handed. What was the point of the trip? And so that has created historically the political push to make people compromise 3% more than they ordinarily would without that pressure, which is why these conferences have taken on an outsized importance. The challenge at the moment, I think, is twofold. The fact that firstly, I don't think ministers are feeling that pressure anymore, at least not in a lot of countries, including the US. I don't think coming back from ministerial without a huge result will significantly damage Catherine Tai or the Biden administration. And secondly, the fact that it's never been enough to tackle the really big issues on which there are profound disagreements. And how much of this work or the legwork is done beforehand in the the run-up to this meeting? Or do you think most of it's already been agreed to and this is about being it having it rubber stamped or is there anything really significant that they'll talk about here in that three percent that Dimitri alluded to I think that a lot of the work is done before the ministers meet but then it's the politically tricky challenging little bits of detail that have to get hammered out when they meet and those are the things that make or break a deal This is why it becomes so consequential that they sit down and talk about these things. So at the end of the day, I think while there have been uh, work programs and day-to-day sort of negotiations going on among the delegates in Geneva, and they have been working tirelessly. I I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. The Secretariat and the delegates are working really hard. uh, But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is when the ministers get together, they just may not have the ability to budge on certain issues. And then that's it. The deal is over. So there are many different issues, I think, being negotiated. Some may have more traction than others. Others may just have to fall apart because we're in an election year in the United States. That's one issue. And there are other different sensitivities that I think uh, many other members are aware of. So I feel like we really don't know until we're there where things may land because the dynamics of the negotiation can change by the minute. Last MC12 was seen as like a big moment for WTO because it had to be saved. In a way, it was felt to be it was sinking and there might no longer have been a confidence in the organization. That moment has passed now. Is there some reason 
at this conference, again, WTO needs to prove itself? Or is maybe that a reason why the drama is lower? I think that's a really good question. Part of, to unpack it, the question is, who does the WTO need to prove itself to and in what way? I think when you say the WTO needed to prove itself on MC12, a lot of what I was hearing was actually, it's not so much that the delegates or even the ministers were saying, oh, if we don't get something done at MC12, the WTO is dead or we will no longer follow the WTO rules. But we heard a lot from was other stakeholders, so say business groups, saying listen, if you can't get anything done here on things like fish that have been rolling for 20 years, we are going to disengage. And so what that would mean is what the WTO needed to prove is, listen, this is an organization, the work of which, and I mean by that the negotiating function of which, is worth investing in for stakeholders. It's worth following. It's worth lobbying on a little bit. It's worth engaging with. And I think that it will have to keep doing that at every ministerial from now until the heat death of the universe. And I guess that holds double Inu for the US. I guess the Biden <clears throat> excuse me, administration has said multilateralism is good, so that helps. But we were on with Valerie Picard. Okay, that's an international ICC, but in any case, driven a lot by US interests. They're talking a lot about WTO reform and still wondering about the value of it. Yeah, I think we're in a really difficult moment in the United States and borrowing from Dimitri's phrase, an inflection point, I would say, where several of the trade conflicts that began under the Trump administration remain unresolved and in some cases have been strongly upheld by the Biden administration, including blocking the appointments to the appellate body. So we have a situation where the Biden administration has continued a lot of the sort of Trump attack on the WTO, but then said they're committed to multilateralism. In the meantime, they've embraced industrial policy, raising serious questions about whether existing rules on subsidies are sufficient to address challenges posed by climate change and the green transition while ensuring that subsidies are not crafted in a discriminatory way. So on the one hand, say, yes, we're committed. On the other hand, saying, we don't need these rules. We're going to go ahead and do what we want anyways. Now, it's an election year in the United States, which means foreign policy, not a typical major focus on the campaign. But it is going to be potentially a major focus of former President Trump, who's going to be talking about trade quite a bit. This means that the Biden administration is really limited to what it can do, I think, on trade out of fear that their actions are going to be spun in a negative way. And at the same time, the administration wants to make progress, the WTO. If you look at the, the long few years that they've been working on this, we've had a while. They shouldn't have waited until now to get reform talks going. So at the end of the day, maybe we have a framework and then we push the real discussions to next year. But I think at this point in time, it's too late to move on WTO reform in a meaningful way where we can get a real outcome. Listening to both of you talk about these topics, it seems to me, one, there's a lot that needs to be done or needs to be because they've given themselves this self-imposed date by which to do this. Do you think there's just too much to have produced something tangible by the end of it? Do you think it runs the risk of diluting the WTO's um, cachet a little bit? I don't think the WTO is stretching itself too, too thin at all. There is something in what you say in that increasingly the WTO membership, and this is the membership, it's not the organization, the membership is looking for wins in the margins. 
So it's not talking about what are considered the core WTO issues, sort of agriculture, market access in goods and services. Instead, it's doing all of the things it's doing. It's looking for agreements which are, I don't want to say marginal or unimportant, but very much on, on the fringes, on the emergency lanes of the highway rather than its three central lanes. That's not to diminish the importance of what's being done, but that is a criticism of the WTO negotiations are not necessarily addressing the things that people expected when they wrote the WTO agreements in 94. So I think that's one point. But in practice, and this goes back to an earlier point, earlier question you asked about what negotiators are doing right now and what they're contributing. What negotiators are currently doing and will continue doing right up until probably the the last day of the conference is trying to take as many of the, resolve as many of the minor issues so that they can present ministers with as few decision points as possible. So from that perspective, I do think we are eventually going to get into a room where ministers are going to have only four or five big questions on which they need to say yay, nay, and reach a consensus. So I don't think it's going to be, they're going to be bombarded with 27 different decision points and say, oh, this is all too hard. If there's no agreement, it's because there's just fundamentally no agreement and not enough political pressure to sacrifice to get one. Yeah, let me just say, I think on, in terms of focusing on the the small issues, Dimitri is absolutely right that there's going to be this push to build up sort of a package from smaller outcomes. And I think that's a legitimate way to go about it. And I think it's a smart way to go about it, given the fact that we have a lot of issues that we need to build agreement on. One thing that I think on the reform side that could be pretty promising, and it may seem like a small issue, but it it could actually be a bigger issue, which is looking at the administrative functions of the WTO itself. So you're looking at the functioning of, of the committees, for example. They operate very differently. There's a bunch of different committees that monitor the implementation of the various agreements that make up the WTO, and there are some that are better than others. There has been an effort to make sort of horizontal rules for these committees. Uh, improving transparency is one big part of that. And without transparency, you can't really develop new rules, understand what's going on out in the big wide world out there uh, in order to, to actually effectuate some sort of change. I think that if we get some movement on WTO reform on the administrative level at the WTO, I think that would actually be very helpful to improve the day-to-day workings uh, of the organization that could actually help lead to better outcomes on negotiations down the line. So I think that there are small things like that would be actually quite a big achievement if we can get them done. Jump into like enthusiastically echo that call and to actually say that it's not even about future negotiations down the line. That Eno is right, it could help. There is a massive challenge coming down the pipe, especially to do with climate change, but also national security, where a whole bunch of major trading players are going to be rolling out a range of policies that are going to have strong impacts on other players, many of which they didn't even intend. Smoothing out the rough edges where those kind of bump up against each other is something that the WTO, especially if you were to reform it a bit, and if you were to generate some momentum behind it, its regular work, 
is ideally set up to do. The procedures are there, the practices there, the people are there. So there is tremendous potential for the WTO to play a kind of lubricating role in a world with a lot more friction. And I will leave you to edit out that disturbing I imagery. I out of my mind. Um, I'll leave it in. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what your audience is like. Uh, like a- you know. But there is genuinely a there, there is a role there, but it does require a reinvestment in the system among members, and some reforms would be a really good way to start that. So, if we can end it on everybody's favorite thing, predictions. If you can pick one thing that is going to happen, and and also if at the end of all of this, MC thirteen. Normal people, and by that I mean people who aren't doing a podcast or talking on a podcast about MC13, will they care about the outcome or will it resonate with them in some way, shape, or form? And will it matter for the normies? Yeah, so here's one thing that I think definitely will happen. At the end of the ministerial, there's going to be a lot of people complaining that they didn't do enough. All right, that always happens after the ministerial. Likewise, there are going to be a few folks saying, they got something done, this is good, Let, let's work on that and keep that going forward. So I think there's going to be those two camps of voices. Now, I like to be an optimist when it comes to these things and say it's really hard to negotiate outcomes in, in such a short period of time and to demand so much from the delegates to do. So I think that what we should look for are the things where we do have some agreement and then keep working on those in the next uh, interim years before we get to the next MC. And at the end of the day, we should care about this because the WTO keeps working despite everyone saying it's a dying organization. I think it's doing great. And I think that not enough people give credit to the day-to-day work that keeps that thing humming and keeps the global economy working as it does. Okay, predictions. And I want to be absolutely clear, there's no insider knowledge going into this. There's barely any knowledge going into this. This is exclusively hope and vibes. So I'm going to go out on the limb and I say something that will happen. I think they're going to get the e-commerce moratorium extension done. Uh, My level of confidence on that is like 50.01%. But And I think what's going to do it is not, as we were talking about earlier, pressure from the US, but the story that countries want to tell investors and supply chain managers about their countries as a safe and predictable investment destination. I think if anything does, it'll be that. In terms of will there be anything that normies should or will deeply care about? No, and there probably shouldn't be. I think in some ways we sometimes, as Ina was saying earlier, we get a little bit carried away with this organization. When the International Customs Organization meets, are there podcasts where people are like, will the normies care about this latest meeting of the ICO to determine what would be tariff code? Thank you for that idea. For yeah, the next I don't know if I've, I've ruined it. But, and the ICO is cool with that because it understands that fundamentally the ICO is working well when it is not necessarily in the headlines. When trade just, when it's completing its function, trade just works. The issues that WTO deals with are overwhelmingly quite technical and it is absolutely fine if normies are not spam refreshing Twitter, waiting to read the outcome document, because it'll just make it easier for Inu to download it first. <laughs> we just lost half our listenership. Thanks. I'm really sorry to those four people, and I hope they come back. <laughs> Predictions. I think Does that reject. count me? <laughs> I wouldn't predict heavy vegetable. I predict fish three will be something that people mention. <laughs> That's what I predict. 
the trilogy is complete. Two point five, maybe. Excellent. Dimitri Inu, thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been super enlightening hearing you guys talk about this. I've learned quite a lot, and I'm sure our listeners will do all four of them, as Dimitri mentioned. <laughs> uh, before Thanks we so go, much. remind the listeners, where can they go to, to find out more about what you're doing? You can find out more about my work on the Council on Foreign Relations website. I am in Washington, D.C., so if you're around, come say hi. And you can follow me at, at Dimitri Opines on Twitter. And you can follow the work of the Geneva Trade Platform at www.genevatradeplatform.org. So, Arnie, that brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. So first, there's a burning story here in Geneva. You know we like to follow Geneva Customs, the intrepid customs men and women that are protecting our border here and the air, sea, and land. We've had a couple of travelers arrive in Geneva with more than 1,200 Viagra pills. And I guess does. they're claiming maybe it's personal use. I don't know if this is really going to pass. I'm telling people, be reasonable. There's not a specific number, but a fistful of 1,200 Viagras is too much. And Geneva Customs, we talk about them a lot here. God love them. They're going to find those pills. Who said Geneva is a boring also, town? Also, exactly. Yeah. When you sit at customs, you remember the, the monkeys that were being smuggled in somebody's pants? We had the various kinds of sausage, and now this. The spring rolls was one that springs to mind. Get it? <laughs> <Yes. Ba-da. laughs> 70, 70 kilos of spring, spring rolls that had to be, and I quote, destroyed. <laughs> um, so... If you come in, folks, with 1,200 or, or, or 1,500 Viagras, that's going to raise questions about whether you need this for personal use. So I would say bring a note, and maybe they're there for a lot of good reasons. Who am I really to ask? What, what's more important is that there's some evidence now from the U.S. that use of Viagra actually improves brain health in older men. So how do you think the customs knew to check these people? What were the signs? <laughs> they were more alert. <laughs> they had higher cognitive abilities. <laughs> Something tells me there were other signs. <laughs> we, t- we, don't, <laughs> we don't have the exact reason why why Viagra may improve preen health in older men, but it does sort of I want to believe begin it. to uh fit <laughs> folks. <laughs> so moving moving right Let's along. Let's land from the that, plane. Um <laughs> so moving, <laughs> Moving right along from that, I think we do have an apology to make to to all of our Swiss listeners here. It appears English is becoming a kind of second national language in Switzerland. You're welcome. <laughs> because it seems like people like us are just barging into places and asking for a beer in English. Of course, this is causing some consternation. Yeah, I understand both sides because... The English speakers in Geneva tend to be just lazy because the Swiss French speakers are quite accommodating. And I think they're taking an advantage. But you can't. How do you treat laziness? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to take a huge remedial effort with English speakers here. Exactly. To be Uh, fair, you have to be really lazy to not say une bière, not be able to say that. (laughs) So getting That wraps up episode 60, brought to you by the many horsemen of the trade apocalypse by Chinese chips, which everybody loves because they're just a little slower than the rest. 
And of course, Geneva's new official language, you guessed it, English. Uh, we also want to thank Inu and Dimitri for telling us why the WTO is half full and taking us through all those possible flavorful outcomes of the upcoming meeting. That's right. We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Ogin, as well as Angela and Armina okay. for highlighting the vibe shift, as well as helping produce this and every TS episode. Special thanks again to Angela and Armina, who have recently joined us both, and we're looking forward to working more with them. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episodes coming out very soon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts, literally anywhere. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining or email us your questions, comments to us the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen responsibly.